Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley and this is part one in a brand new series. Here on the podcast, it's been months in the making, it's got a hell of a cast list. So park yourself in the best comfy chair, make yourself a cup of tea and enjoy part one of the Sunday shows at 50. Twenty twenty two marks fifty years since the launch of Weekend World, the flagship Sunday political programme which paved the way for everyone that followed. It kickstarted a broadcasting arms race. In the next half century, there have been Sunday shows with tough questioning, soft questioning, and even softer furnishings. Kipper ties, skinny ties, and no ties at all. Over the next six weeks, we will tell the story of how what happened on the Sunday sofa became more important than what happened in the Houses of Parliament. How political and journalistic careers were made and broken, even how elections were won and lost. We'll bring you the stories of presenters and producers, Prime Ministers and their press officers. From Thatcher to Blair to Johnson, and how they took on Walden, Frost and Marr. Hello and good afternoon. Welcome. Good morning. Hello and welcome. Good morning. I mean, you were always aware of the fact it was, you, know, you were going to go in and have 10 rounds and you know come out fairly battered. There was always a good feast afterwards, and because the other guests were there, it was always good fun. There is quite an intense rivalry. I take a quiet pride, and I'm not going to list it here, in the number of other Sunday morning programmes we've seen off. It was meant as a message to politicians, tread very gently when you come on this programme, because we'll snap you in two. I realised at that point that something had gone down. I remember after one interview, we went back and, and played football in David's garden. It was unavoidable. Uh, you had to do the Sunday morning shows. And do you know what? Because I was living in Cheam, you know, Surrey, middle-class upbringing, nothing was going on except this thing on a Sunday. There have been many versions of the Sunday political show, launched for a variety of reasons. Broadcast licence obligations, a fear of missing out, occupying an underemployed big name, promoting a brand, getting mentioned in the Sunday papers, a feeling that it was just the right thing to do. Rarely, it seems, was the viewer at the heart of the equation, if considered at all. Yet millions of people have tuned into programmes which over half a century have changed beyond recognition, and yet not at all. The suits have got sharper, the interviews have got shorter and the answers have got harder to come by. But at the heart is still the same sport, politician versus interviewer. This is The Sunday Shows at 50 and it starts in 1972. Donny Osmond topped the charts with Puppy Love. Edward Heath was Prime Minister. Richard Nixon was President. The Miners went on strike. Team GB won no medals at the Winter Olympics. The very first political Sunday show was a serious, heavyweight, occasionally heavy-going look at what was important in the world. And its theme tune, as far from Donny Osmond as you can get, set the tone. The prog rock band Mountain demanded viewers' attention for the very first Sunday politics show, Weekend World. It was the brainchild of John Burt, who later produced the Frost-Nixon interviews and became Director General of the BBC. And the presenter he chose to take on the politicians was Peter Jay. He was already economics editor of The Times and had a call from someone inviting him to lunch in Covent Garden. After a morning in the newsroom, he headed to the restaurant. And I sat and I waited and I waited 
and uh, the other person didn't turn up. Peter Jay is now 85, famous for later becoming ambassador to the US and then economics editor of the BBC, and he kept waiting. At the very last moment when I was about to go back to my office, a waiter came and asked me whether I was expecting a guest or a host. And I said, yes, but he hasn't come. I don't know why. They said, well, we think he's waiting upstairs. And I said, OK, uh, it's a bit late now, but uh, let's see. And I went upstairs and there was John. The two met at last and television history was about to begin. At this point, John Burt was just 27 years old. He worked for one of the regional independent TV franchises, LWT, or more fully, London Weekend Television. Those who watched the channel at the time will find its branding instantly familiar. Perhaps you can picture the red, white and blue LWT appearing on the screen. Well, London Weekend had tasked Burt with launching a new 90-minute current affairs programme for Sunday lunchtime. It was part of the commitment the broadcaster had to fulfil as part of their franchise. Worth remembering, this was a time when there were only three channels. They all closed down at night. So individual TV shows won audience of many millions and gave them huge impact. The very first edition of Weekend World was broadcast on October the 1st, 1972. The programme's aim was to force its way onto the agenda. Behind Peter J was a skilled team of producers agonising over packages designed to reveal the world to Britain. It was all part of John Burton, Peter J's mission to explain. It included long, painstakingly prepared interviews with all the big political players of the day. In response to the challenge, the politicians fought back with what would one day be called spin doctors trying to wrestle control. Peter Jay, who describes the first time he interviewed Margaret Thatcher on Weekend World in 1977, when she was still leader of the opposition. She was accompanied by what I regard as a noxious little uh, sort of PR man. This was in the days, 50 years ago, when PR men didn't have the sort of role or status that sort of political or PR advisor now has. And I remember him appearing in the studio and trying to behave as though he was some uh, great power in the land and uh, trying to give orders to the studio crew how his minister should be lit and seated and how she should look and fussing about things which I consider to be none of his business. And I remember forming a very uh, low view of this form of low life uh, intruding into what was I hoped was going to be a serious political interview. Over the years, Thatcher would make many appearances on Weekend World, from discussing a return to Victorian values to sketching out for the first time her planned reforms of trade unions. On another occasion, Peter Jay clashed with Joe Haynes, then press secretary to Labour's Harold Wilson, over which ministers could appear. And I said, that's a matter for us. It's not up to you to tell me who we can or can't have, should or shouldn't have for an interview. And he said that he wouldn't allow this person to appear. And I said, oh, I've taken in what you said, and I shall say on air that you have refused to allow a minister to appear to explain himself. And we parted on extremely bad terms. Peter Jay threatening what we now call the empty chair. This was a serious business, and it was deliberately not like other TV of the time. Two years after Weekend World launched, its creator John Bird wrote an article for the Times which had caused considerable controversy. There was a bias in journalism, he wrote, not against any particular party or point of view. There's a bias against understanding. Together with Peter Jay, he wrote two more criticising TV journalism. They were accused of monstrous snobbery and overweening pomposity. But the show went on. 
That was until Peter Jay got a better offer when his then father-in-law, the Labour Prime Minister James Callaghan, asked him to become Britain's ambassador to Washington. The last thing I remember is I fell off my chair in amazement. As Peter Jay packed his bags and flew off to the US, it was the next presenter of Weekend World who took the programme to its zenith. Hello and good morning. That's Brian Walden, a gamekeeper turned poacher. Walden was a Labour MP with an independent streak who left Parliament to take the vacant chair on Weekend World. His interviews inspired many of those who went on to become the biggest names in British politics and journalism. John Humphreys. I personally still miss Brian Walden, whom I happen to think was the greatest of, uh, of all political interviews. I think he was... Um, he was a genius in his own way um, and, um, and, and deserved all the accolades he got. Very, very, very hard act to follow. Sir Keith, nobody would object to your efforts to raise educational standards. And many people would give you credit for what you have tried to do in general on education. But there's no getting away from the fact that it has become a very, very hot chestnut indeed now. In Yorkshire, a young lad called William Haig was tuning in. When I was a teenager, very interested in politics, I found it compulsive viewing. Now, of course, I was a really unusual teenager in that respect. But it had something about it that is still very important, which is, OK, only a minority of people want to see nearly an hour's discussion, maybe, with one person about politics. But there's probably a few million people in the country who do want to see that, who really want a searching examination of a political leader. They can make up their mind about them then much more than from a soundbite. And I think that was a really important function in the media that we have lost, except in some, we get that in some podcasts now, of course, but we don't really get it in the big set piece television interviews. He was not the only 1970s teenager glued to Weekend World. 250 miles away, Jeremy Vine was watching. When you say Weekend World, I'm immediately triggered in a good way because... I didn't even know I was interested in politics as a as a child. And, a, you know, it started when I was about five or six years old. And I can remember one particular edition, and it was probably in about 1979. So I would have been 14. And they explained the Northern Ireland situation, which I had not got a clue about. For me as a 14-year-old, I needed them to say the proportion of Protestants and Catholics in Northern Ireland and illustrate it with little tiny Sabutio men. You know, in a, I don't think you'd ever do that now. So they did a proper thing about why there's a lot of bother in Northern Ireland. And then they interviewed the Northern Ireland Secretary, whoever it was. And do you know what? Because I was living in Cheam, you know, Surrey, middle class upbringing, nothing was going on except this thing on a Sunday. And, and I mean, uh, this is the tragedy, I suppose, of a, of a childhood in the 70s, that, that because of nothing going on, you had to, had to watch it. Yeah. And, and as a result of that, I, I had a lot of political input that I wouldn't have even, the equivalent of me, age 14 now, would never have chosen. Tony Blair went from being a viewer to a guest as a young backbencher. Weekend World was a, a really quite iconic programme because Brian Walton was a former Labour MP, had then gone off and done this, these interviews and then had his own program and he was a big figure a really tough interviewer i mean tough not in the sense of rude but tough in the sense of very forensic you know he he researched his interviews in a, a very careful way and you know i remember a lot of the interviews he did with margaret thatcher for example uh, some of them were pretty you know impactful interviews um i did a couple with them myself 
uh, in which we got into some interesting <laughs> interesting and difficult issues. But, you know, you never went on that program without being fully prepared. I mean, I would prepare for at least a day before I got in front of him because he was, he was just extremely well prepared himself and very sharp. Not everyone was quite so prepared. Neil Kinnock, the Labour leader from 1983, took a more laid-back approach. Well, I understand that in more recent years, preparation by leading politicians has been intense, involving hours of rehearsal. I have to say, and maybe I was wrong about this, I did no rehearsal. With my team, checked through a few obvious issues for questioning and then went on the programme. So you couldn't describe it as, in any sense, intense. It only spoiled my Sunday mornings uh, when I was training the London Welsh under-14s and under-15s, and it meant that I had to be absent from the Sunday morning training sessions. <laughs> this is The Sunday Shows at 50. Up next, here on the Red Box Podcast, we find out what went on behind the cameras on Weekend World. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Behind the scenes, the production team grew, bolstered by talent, and to come to dominate politics for years, including Christopher Hitchens, the later much-acclaimed polemicist, and David Aronovich, who would one day rise to become half of Finkelfitch on this show. And Weekend World, they, they took me on. There was one job going. They interviewed a number of people. One of the people I beat for that job was a guy I knew quite well myself, actually, called Peter Mandelson. Uh, he didn't get the job. He had to go and work on the London programme, uh, which is a very good programme, etc., but not what he wanted. And I think it's almost the last time he was beaten for anything, really. Eventually, Mandelson would get his opportunity to join Weekend World too. It taught him the art of boiling down a message. I discovered the beauty of packaging information for the TV interviewer. What, my job as a researcher and occasionally as a producer was to put the 
the programme together, which was all pre-recorded in a pre-scripted analysis with a very strong narrative. But we had to recruit pundits and experts to stand up what we were saying. And we had to get them to fit in exactly to the length that we needed and the line of argument of our choosing. And if they got either the length or the content wrong, you know, we would keep repeating the question until they got the answer uh, that we needed at the length that was required. In fact, the main thing that Neil Kinnock got out of his weekend world appearances was a new director of communications, poaching Peter Mandelson to beef up Labour's struggling media operation. We had several applications from good quality candidates, but well before we had any interviews, I decided in consultation with my team that Peter was the man substantially because, of course, his whole background was in television production. And it was in that area that we felt the biggest improvement had to take place. Clearly, Peter was the man. Madison proved to be a combative player when it came to message control. The media had to become my, our instrument. They had to become our slaves almost. I mean, you know, I just was not going to allow them to sort of you know, lorded over us anymore to give us a hard time without our pushing back, inflicting every awful, ghastly story uh, on us, you know, without trying to get our own stories and our own news and our own narrative tucked in at the end of a story. And it was a real struggle. It was the 1980s for me uh, was like a sort of being in the jungle. It was like a sort of hand-to-hand combat with the media. Each episode of Weekend World began with a detailed film known as Pea Factories because one of the early iterations was filmed in a pea tinning factory. It took the hand of the viewer and walked or dragged them through the policy dilemma of the day. Well, the main effect of this rush of new ideas has been to create increasing uncertainty about the direction of conservative education policies. The future. Next, there'd be an extended interview, lasting up to an hour with a senior politician, in which they'd be coaxed into accepting the premise of the dilemma and then be forced into saying what they're going to do about it. John Burt likened it to a chess game. David Aronovich explains the rules. The script itself will go through up to G versions, i.e. eight versions of the script as you refined it down. The script for the interview would be, if he says or she says X, then go to Y. If she hesitates, then go to Z, and then Z would say, "If she so, you'd have this kind of incredible." I never understood how Brian Morden could keep his kind of eye on all this paper, etc. Which said, "If if this, then this. If there, and we and we would role play it quite often, particularly with the big interviews, your Thatchers, your Michael Foots, you know, leaders of political parties, and so on, and sometimes people from outside Britain. So it was really, really thought about. I've never worked on a piece of journalism that was as thought about." as Weekend World used to be. And did it work? And the answer was it worked sometimes. And when it worked, it was spectacular. This was not merely journalism, it was religion to be passed down through the generations, including to a young producer and presenter who almost half a century later would go on to front Sky News's flagship Sunday show, Trevor Phillips. I was a kid. I'd been in television for about 10 months and I had to do a half-hour interview with Roy Hattersley, which is a long big thing. And I was terrified. And Tassidy was quite a big deal, you know, as a senior politician. So I went to Brian Walden and I said, Brian, can you give me some tips? And Walden did the kindest thing ever. He said, okay, come over to the studio, which I'm going to book on Wednesday afternoon. 
and come prepared with your questions and interview me as though I were Roy Hattersley, and I will be Roy Hattersley. We will then stop and I'll then tell you what I thought, and then we'll do it again, which is what he did. He gave his time up. Why does this matter? It matters because in our way of thinking, when you became an interviewer, you weren't just there because you could string a sentence together or you could ask a question theatrically. You were the carrier of a method. And Walden saw it as part of his duty to teach me that method. And anyone who remembers a golden age of when politicians always answer the question are wearing rose-tinted spectacles. Thatcher, of course, did the famous technique everybody noticed, which is she would just tell you what the question was you should have asked and then answer it. Jeremy Vine was gripped at home. I've got a memory about 25, 30 Walden interviews. and I don't think you could do them now. You know, there's one where Keith Joseph, I think, had a 16-second pause while he thought about something. To some extent, you accept some blame for the alienation that has grown between you and the teachers. It would be too smug to do otherwise. Splendid. Then let me take you on to something else. But he was so amazing that when the next person took over, Matthew Paris, it just didn't work. In 1986. That's all from Weekend World for today. And it's my last uh, appearance as presenter of Weekend World. Brian Walton quit the programme and the producers went in search of another MP who could be tempted to swap the Commons for the television studio. So there I was, a backbench MP, kind of contented, kind of in a rut, kind of being passed over. And I get this call out of the blue from Weekend World, London Weekend Television. Would I like to take over from Brian Walden? £50,000 a year, doubling my salary then as an MP, and maybe going somewhere, which I, I wasn't. Matthew Powers is now a Times columnist, but at the time he'd been the Conservative MP for West Derbyshire for seven years, when the call came and he decided to make the leap. You weren't um, our, the, our first choice, they said, but uh, uh, Chris Patton has, uh, in fact, uh, t- turned it down. <laughs> he went on to be Governor of Hong Kong. I went on to present Weekend World. Uh, which I led to an early grave. I I was uh, undoubtedly a failure as a television presenter. All of this didn't go unnoticed in Downing Street. Margaret Thatcher had been none too impressed by Matthew Powers' decision to jump ship from politics to pursue his dream of being a media star. Mrs Thatcher was absolutely furious. Uh, She thought it was really bad form to leave Parliament just to take another job. And I shouldn't have done it. It was disloyal. It triggered a by-election that the party feared they might lose although in the end they just didn't. One of the consequences of that was she would never agree to appear on Weekend World while I was the presenter. So it didn't help the fortunes of the programme that for two years we couldn't get the Prime Minister. Appearing on TV required quite the makeover. My face has never been my fortune and I was never particularly interested in in clothes and things like that. But they took me to Geeves and Hawks and um, they got me two very expensive suits, one of which I'm still wearing some (laughs) 45 years later. Um, New ties, new shirts. uh, And um, they said, your teeth aren't straight. And I said, no, I know, but I I like my teeth as they are. My my two front teeth were sort of crossed over. They said, "Um, no, 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 you've got to have your teeth straightened. So at vast expense, uh, which I had to pay for, but I think they compensated me for, and we persuaded the Inland Revenue that it was uh, it was something that was chargeable against my job because I really didn't want to have my teeth straightened. They, they straightened the teeth. The dentist uh, said, oh, well, we, we, we had Ted Heath. He, he's, he's our most famous predecessor. Now we've got you. I still miss my wonky front teeth. Matthew Paris found it hard work, not least grilling his former Conservative colleagues. I was particularly confounded by some very bloody-minded interviewees 
Norman Tebbit, he knew he was doing this, halfway through an interview, suddenly said to me, when was the last Irish general election? Well, I had no idea. Um, who does? But it didn't look good uh, for the presenter of Weekend World not to know that. Ted Heath told me exactly what he was going to say and then said exactly the opposite when we came to the interview, totally confounding me. Both of them, I, I think, out of sheer devilment. This niche political jousting was not exactly blockbuster content. After initial media frenzy over his appointment, Matthew Paris realised that not that many people were actually watching. I was noticed that very often on the tube, people who had come up to me and say they'd watched me would be, for instance, Nigerian students. They, they were serious people. You know, they wanted to they wanted to learn. But the general population in Britain, I think, wanted something a bit catchier. After 16 years on air, London Weekend Television pulled the plug. Not just on Matthew Powis, but the whole programme. When our ratings had continued to drop till I think they didn't even show up on the ratings... Uh, after two years, rumours began that not only was I being axed, but the whole programme was being axed. And that made me, I didn't, well, I minded about being axed, but, you know, that I'd taken my chances and I'd failed. I felt very sorry for all the producers. David Aronovich on The Times was one of my producers. Of course, they've all gone on to great things, but I felt I'd let everybody down. And um, it made me, and to, to this day still makes me feel slightly sad. David Aronovich himself is more generous. It wasn't Matthew's fault. I mean, I know he'll probably tell it as a story against himself because of the way, the way he does it wasn't. And um, firstly, he wasn't really set up to be the kind of logical terrorist that was near, that, that the programme kind of wanted. But the major change that was happening was that the economic ecology of ITV was altering at that point. And they really weren't inter becoming less interested in running analytical programmes and interview programmes in slots. They imagined that somehow or other magically they could get better advertising revenue out of they felt they needed to change the profile of watchers so they needed younger viewers so they wanted to experiment with formats and they're all it's always the same it's always been the same ever since i've been in journalism the journalists trying to be more popular by trying to get younger this is and younger that's etc it never works etc because it makes the assumption firstly that young people are available to watch television at midday on a sunday of course they're not or 11 o'clock on a sunday were you However, by the time Weekend World came off air, it had cemented the idea of politics on a Sunday. BBC One had launched This Week Next Week with David Dimbleby in 1986. And since 1983, the disastrous launch of TVAM had left one of the most famous faces on the planet looking for something to do. Hello, good morning and welcome to Breakfast with Frost. Many times I used to go on David Frost's programme and I'd come out of it and think, why did I give him all those stories? I didn't really mean to do that. There was always a good feast afterwards. Yeah. And it was this lavish breakfast banquet and that was the deal. That really was the beginning of it when people actually took David seriously. I remember John Major came many times for Sunday lunch, Tony Blair many times and after lunch we'd always play football. Join us next week for a look at how David Foss, first on ITV and then the BBC, combined soft furnishings with often soft questions to make his Sunday show a must-watch. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.